If you would, join me by turning in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3 as we conclude the narrative of the fall in part 2 of chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 as we'll look through the completion of chapter 3 together this morning. One of the main ways that Christianity is set apart from every other religion that the world has to offer us is this great hope, that there is a merciful God who brings life out of brokenness. There is one true creator God who is merciful to bring that which is dead into a state of life. To take us from our feet being trapped in the mud of sin and death and placing us upon the rock of Jesus Christ. This is the great hope of Christianity and it is not by anything that we have done that is good and of ourselves to attain a good standing again with God to return to the paradise of the garden. It is based on the mercy of God alone. That he is rich in mercy. And so God, being rich in mercy, creates life out of death. I believe that's what we'll see here as we walk through Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24 this morning. And as we do that, I want us to consider three things today. I want us to consider a paradise destroyed, a promise displayed, and a provision dispensed. If you would, begin with me reading in verse 8 of chapter 3 of Genesis. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, the first thing I want us to see here is a paradise destroyed. Right away in this part of the narrative, we realize that something is drastically different about the garden paradise. We got a hint of this last week in verse 7 when the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But we come now to these verses that we just read and we see that there is, there is something of a conflict that has been created between the man and his wife but also between the man, his wife, and with this creator God who put them in the garden. And the, the, the writer here wants us to realize right away to remember that God is there. His presence is there. They heard the sound of the Lord God, it says there in verse 8. 
In other parts of the Old Testament, when we consider hearing the sound of God or hearing the voice of the Lord, there's two ways we can respond. We can respond in obedience or we can respond in fear and flee the presence of the Lord. It says there, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, This is what we call anthropomorphism, where the writer gives to God a a human attribute to communicate something about him. God doesn't have legs and feet. He wasn't walking through the garden. His presence is there. He was nearby the man and the woman. And before the fall, this meant safety and refuge to be in the presence of God. If you remember back to chapter 2, verse 15, we, we paused for a moment there to talk about the word put and how the word put there in chapter 2, verse 15, spoke to the refuge and safety that they would experience in the presence of God by being placed in the garden. And yet now there's not a sense of safety and refuge. There's now a sense of fear and shame. They hide themselves among the very trees that were once a place of refuge in God's God's presence. But now the trees represent a place of fear, a place of hiding from the presence of God. And so God asked them four questions. And what we see unfolding here is almost like a courtroom scene. Uh, As the judge asks questions, as the the jury sits under and listens to the questioning of the defendant, right before the conviction is laid, here in a moment in verses 14 through 19, we see a courtroom setting with these four questions. And the first question that God asks to Adam is, where are you? You might say to yourself, well, is not God all-knowing, all-powerful? Isn't he Uh, isn't he everywhere? Is his presence is there in the garden? Does God not know where Adam is? Well, God most certainly knows where Adam and his wife are. This is a rhetorical question to make a point. And in so doing, he causes Adam then to confess his guilt. And Adam responds with three things. He says, I heard, I was afraid, and so I hid. And his fear is rooted again in the fact that he notes here, the writer notes for us, that Adam realizes what? That he is naked. We saw this last week in verse 7. We talked about how that relates to verse 25 in chapter 2, and that this is not so much a realization of his physical state as it is he realizes he is under the threat of the judgment of God. The judgment of God is imminent. Under the covenant of works, he was promised life if he obeyed God, but if he disobeyed God, he was promised death, and death is coming to him. So God follows up his response with two more questions. He says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The emphasis here on these two questions is very simple, and it is the tree. The tree and the violation of the command that God told Adam and Eve earlier in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, to not eat of the tree. And so it's not that anyone told them they were naked. Their knowledge came by the tree and by disobedience. They had disobeyed their master. And so then Adam responds again to these questions, and he puts blame on God. He says there, the woman whom you gave me. Just a moment ago in chapter 2, verse 23, he's praising God for the woman. This is bone of my bones, uh, flesh of my flesh. He blesses the Lord, and yet here he curses the Lord for putting this woman with him. But he also blames the woman. 
the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. But at the end of verse 12, he confesses, I ate. God then turns his attention to the woman and he asks her the fourth and final question, what is this you have done? And the force here of the question is very much like asking your child, what in the world did you do? And Eve's response is very similar to that of Adam. She puts the blame on something else, someone else, the serpent deceived me. And although there is truth to this statement, The serpent most definitely was the one who brought about the deception. Although this is true, this does not excuse her disobedience to the command. And yet, the woman herself as well confesses, as her husband did, and she says, I ate. And all of a sudden, we feel the weight of the fall. The weight of a paradise loss where God, Man and woman were created to exist in the presence of God for all eternity, and that is broken in a moment. There is now enmity between man and woman and their creator, God, and they are in desperate need of reconciliation. Things are broken. Things have changed. This paradise is lost. And so I wonder if we were put in a situation like this, where we had to stand before a holy creator God and he was to judge us according to his law, what our confession would be. And so I I want us to do that just for a moment here. I want to test you according to the law of God. And when we think of the law of God, we primarily think of the Ten Commandments. So we're just going to look at three. I'm going to ask you these questions. I don't want you to answer them out loud. I do want you to answer them truthfully. This is a rhetorical question. So the first one is this. Have you ever stolen anything? Ever borrowed something and didn't return it? If you've stolen something, you are a thief. Have you ever told a lie? If the answer to that question is no, you've just broken that commandment. You are indeed a liar. We think about a command like, thou shalt not murder I don't know everyone here. I would assume there's no murderers in our presence today. But Christ comes and he says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you have committed murder. You're guilty of murder. These are just three of the Ten Commandments. And I would assume by your own confession, you have broken all three. And and Christ tells us if you break one point of the law, you have broken it in completion. And so when we stand as people before the Holy righteous creator God, the judge of the universe, and we stand up against his law, our confession is the same as Adam and Eve. I ate. I am guilty and broken and separated from you because of my sin. We shift, though, from a confession of guilt to the conviction, the punishment for the crime. We turn our attention to verses 14 through 19 where we see, secondly, a promise displayed. Let's pick up the story there in verse 15, or verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, and all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The promise that is displayed here, first of all, is the promise of death. At the end of verse 17, chapter 2, the the promise for disobedience is there. It says, you shall surely die. And we see the curse being laid out for us here. And firstly, uh, God deals with the serpent. Uh, He primarily focuses here on the animal itself. Now, last week we talked about how the writer was not so concerned about who the serpent is in chapter 3, verse 1, as he is with what the serpent says. Uh, It's important for us here, as we'll see in a moment, to affirm that the snake is Satan himself, the deceiver. But the curse here focuses firstly on the animal, the, the snake. And we're reminded here that under the curse, all of creation falls under the curse. All of creation is banished from this paradise, this garden. It appears here that the the serpent is impacted more so. It's told that it will crawl on its belly. It will eat dust. We see that the snake and the man, the the descendant of the woman and the, the, the descendant of the snake will be at odds. And in a general sense, when we look at the snake, we see this. Uh, my kids were watching Indiana Jones yesterday, and if you know what Indiana Jones' one fear is, it's what? Snakes. And we're at odds with snakes. We see that it's a reminder of the fall. There's something more happening here, though. I want us to come back to that in a moment. Let's move our attention then to the woman. Her punishment is twofold. First is pain in childbearing. It's not just the pain that the woman experiences at the birth of the child. It is from the moment of conception that then culminates in that, that moment of extreme pain when the child comes forth. And so we're talking about, we're talking about the, the morning sickness, ladies. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and you're pregnant, and you are not very comfortable in these wooden pews. And you know who to blame. There's also an emotional quality to this. There's an emotional struggle that the woman can understand that the man will never understand when it comes to the biology of having children. There's pain. But we secondly see the relationship with her husband. Now, there is so much that I could say about the end of verse 16 here. We could preach an entire sermon just at the end of verse 16. I want us to just succinctly see what we have here. And so I want you to focus on two words. First is your desire. My translation says, your desire shall be for your husband. I think a better translation here would be for it to say, your desire shall be against your husband or contrary to your husband. They are at odds now in their relationship. The woman has a desire for something different than the man. The second word that's important there, though, is the word rule. He, your husband, shall rule over you. And that word rule means exactly what it says there. It literally means mastery over or lordship. But we need to understand that this is a result of the fall. This is not how God intended the perfect partnership to be in the garden. So we affirmed, and rightfully so, in the garden that there were genders created with different roles, man, woman, husband, and wife. And when we come to the New Testament, we see that because Adam was created first, he is the head of the marriage. We affirm that. But this type of rule that it's speaking of here is a fallen view of marriage. The the man and the woman are at odds. 
And this is true for all of human history. You know, I could, I could make a joke right now and get myself in a lot of trouble about the differences between man and woman. I'll spare you of that. We know how men and women have trouble getting along. We think about a man and how he just can't take directions. We always get lost. We see this, this, this relationship at odds. And hear this, it is, that serves then as a reminder of the curse. This is a result of the curse. This is a post-fall partnership impaired, but it's also a reminder for us of our need for redemption. A need for redemption in our marriages, especially, that the only hope for harmony in the marriage relationship in this post-fall world is through Christ alone. And yet, even the healthiest Christian marriage still has its struggles. Conflict arises, and again, this reminds us of the fall, of our brokenness and our desperate need each and every day in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, to allow Christ to rule our lives. We finally turn our attention then to the man and the punishment that comes to him. It says there in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. So earlier, God says to the woman, because you prompted the man to eat, he shall now rule over you. Here it says, because you listened to the voice of your wife, there will be painful toil for you the rest of your days in your desire to find nourishment. This relationship, this partnership that they had was, was now broken. And we're reminded to Adam's passiveness in the story of the fruit. Look with me back at chapter 3, verse 6, at the very end. The only thing that we see here about Adam is what? That he ate. Adam was passive. He was lazy. He willfully disobeyed at his wife's prompting alone. He did not have to have a discourse with the serpent to fall. And because of this, he will spend the rest of his days toiling for provision, working by the sweat of his brow to provide for his family. And this, too, is an ongoing reminder of the fall. And he's told there at the very end, in verse 19, that he will return to the dust. And this is the promise of death realized. The promise of death that came at the end of verse 17. You shall surely die. But I want us to go back to the serpent and the seed of the woman to notice a second promise that we see here, a promise that is displayed, and it is the promise of a seed. At the end of verse 15, it says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is one who is coming who will crush the head of the serpent. Who is this? Who is this seed? I love what one commentator said about this verse in particular. He said, the purpose of this verse is not to answer that question. The remainder of the book is the answer to the question. The story of Genesis is a promise of a Messiah to come, a deliverer, a savior, and we know who the seed is. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is promised that his descendants will be a blessing to the nation. In Genesis chapter 17, he's told that his son, the, the heir that he will have by his own body in his old age, will be the, the fulfillment of that promise. And that promise will be carried on to his son and his son, that there is a seed who is coming. 
And we come to the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the seed. He is the promised one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. Now, a quick side note here on Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. We see here uh, a, a biblical case for the exposition of Scripture. Because Paul here is doing an expository example of how we deal with the Old Testament. But also here, we see something really unique that the writers in the ESV, uh, the translators of the ESV, do here with the word offspring. Uh, because the word offsprings is not a word in the English language. The plural of offspring is offspring. And yet the writers use the, this bad grammar to communicate something that we see here in the Hebrew, that this is not speaking of many, but it's speaking of one. A better Adam who is promised to come. And Christ would be bruised and crushed and he would die a gruesome death on the cross, but he would rise victorious over sin and death. He would bring the final blow to the serpent. What's interesting as we look at the, the curse here in verses 14 through 19 is that really we spend all of our lives trying to overcome the fall, trying to get back to the garden, and sometimes we, we don't even realize it. Now, what we see here in verses 14 through 19 is not a command. It's a statement about what the world will be like post-fall. And so if you try to do things to better your life, to reduce the sweat of your brow, that's not necessarily that you're disobeying God as much as it is a reminder of the fall. And so you think about epidurals, uh, that, that women have and, and when they have their child, that that is not necessarily a sin so much as it is a reminder of our fallen state. We're trying to get back to the garden. And the work that we do each and every day in our time is, is far easier than it's ever been. Just the idea of a grocery store is unique to human history. For most of human history, you had to work for food. Now that you can just go to a store and get what you need and and really, you don't even have to do that anymore. You can get provision from your phone. Five minutes later, somebody rings your doorbell, and it's there, and it reminds us that we are fallen. And all the apps in the world and all the conveniences in the world will not allow us to escape the fall of the first Adam. And we're reminded this morning to put our faith in the last Adam the better Adam, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so I take you back to that courtroom scene earlier where we all stand before the righteous judge and our confession is, I am guilty, I ate. And God says in the new covenant, in the better covenant, established by his son and his blood, that I have made a way for you to have life through mercy. And that mercy is found at the cross by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This better Adam, this seed that was to come and has come and has conquered sin and death. The mercy that we're speaking of here, though, is found in the final verses. In verses 20 through 24, we see a provision dispensed. Let's finish the story together, beginning in verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the second time that we see Adam naming his wife. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 23, he called his wife woman, which means out of the ground. So he named her because of her origin. She came out of the man, out of the, out of the ground, and then she came out of the man. But secondly here, he names her based on her destiny. That word Eve means life giver, and you see it there at the end of verse 20. She was the mother of all living. And in verse 29, there's great hope to be found. Because we contrast the life that is spoken of and promised of in verse 20 to the promise of death in verse 19. To dust you shall return. And so Adam is expressing faith in God that he will give life. Make no mistake about it, death is coming for Adam. And death will come to each of his descendants, but not today. Not on this day. And we see here the great goodness of God and his patient forbearance and his mercy for us. That God had the right to destroy Adam and Eve there in that moment, and yet he was patient and, and gracious. Adam expresses his faith in that. So essentially, we see a confession and faith here from Adam and Eve. I ate, and then Adam expresses his faith that God will give life. We also see the mercy of God in a sacrifice. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Adam's attempt to cover he and his wife in verse 7 of chapter 3 is futile. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They needed a better covering. They could not cover themselves. God comes and he provides for them that better covering. He intervenes on their behalf with the skin of a sacrifice. Covering their disobedience. And showing that it comes by pain and blood and suffering and the death of a sacrifice. And this is the first of what would be many sacrifices that we see throughout the Old Testament. The blood of bulls and goats pointing us to the better sacrifice that would come in Christ, the blood of the seed that would be spilt. Finally, they're kicked out of the garden, and this in and of itself is a mercy of God. They are kicked out of the garden to live under the fall, but the writer tells us here that they're moved eastward, they move towards Babylon, toward Sodom and Gomorrah, places where we see death and destruction coming because of sin. But in the verses that will come soon in Genesis, there's a promise of return to the West. A land of promise, a promised land that is possible that God will bring them eventually back into good standing with him. 
the story of creation, fall, and redemption. There is great mercy to be found in verses 20 through 24. But we cannot know the mercy of God that is found in verses 20 through 24 until we first understand the justice of God that's found in verses 14 through 19. And we cannot know of the justice of God unless Adam and Eve eat the fruit. There's a young lady in our church, one of our teenage girls who early on in the Genesis study came up to me and said, you know, pastor, today you said God is perfect in everything he does. So why does he allow sin? I told her this was a great question that she needs to come back today. We'll try to answer that a little bit. The question of why does evil exist? Did God create evil again? We could go on for hours trying to unpack this, but just for a moment, let's consider this. Augustine said this in his, his studying of this and thinking through this. He said, God created everything good, but evil is not a thing. Not that he said evil doesn't exist. We all affirm that evil exists, but evil is not a lump of something that you can pass to someone. Evil is a perversion of that which is good. And so God does not do evil, nor does he create evil, but he most certainly ordains its existence in his world. And we see throughout the pages of Scripture that he can and does stop evil to accomplish his will. But we also see that he can and does ordain evil to accomplish his will. He is sovereign. He has the right and the wisdom and the power to do all that he pleases. And this is a great mystery that we cannot even begin to fathom. But we know who our God is. We know who scripture tells us that he is and we rest in that, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that nothing happens outside of his will. He is omnipotent and omniscient and all-powerful. He is all-knowing. Everything happens according to the perfect will of God. And without the fall, there is no understanding of his justice and his mercy. There's no story of redemption. And so before the foundation of the world, God most certainly knew and ordained the fall, and it was a part of his glorious plan of redemption to the praise of his glory alone. And we rest in that today. So I want us to close by turning to the New Testament just for a moment. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we come to the conclusion of the creation story and, and, and the story of the fall, I want us to see something here as we close today in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49. As we've read through Genesis 1 through 3, there's been a lot of emphasis on dust. In fact, we saw here at the end of our passage this morning the promise that Adam would return to the dust. I want us to see here the language of dust here in 1 Corinthians 15. Begin with me in verse 45. It says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And so remember we talked about those words there that Adam is a creature. He's a living being. He was from the ground. Uh, it goes on to say there then in verse uh, 45, the last Adam, who is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you bear the image of the man of heaven this morning? Do you bear the image of the last Adam, the better Adam, or are you still clinging to the image of the first Adam, clinging to the dust? There's no hope in the dust, but there is hope in the man from heaven, the better Adam, Christ himself. And so what do we do with this passage this morning? The call in this passage this morning is for us to give our lives completely and surrender our lives completely to the better Adam, to Christ. In our marriages, in our families, in our career, in all of life that we would live for Christ. And so I wonder this morning as we close, if you're still living in submission to the man of the dust, the covenant of works, And that covenant promises death because, as we talked about earlier, we are all guilty of breaking the law of God. But there's great hope for us this morning in a covenant of grace that was bought by the blood of Christ. And Scripture tells us if we put our faith in Christ alone, we will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's close in prayer.